0: Do you ever wonder how your favorite country artist got to where they are today? We had no fear whatsoever. In fact, we, we probably made a lot of mistakes. People go, what are they doing? They're not ready for this. But we were so hungry to be out there in front of people that we probably should have spent a little more time honing our craft <laughs> before we just dove in. Did success come easy or was it a long, hard road? I wasn't sure I was going to make it at all, but I just kept like the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. What advice would they give to a young artist?
1: The greatest advice Elvis ever gave me. If you ever forget where you came from, you're never gonna get where you want to go.
2: Meet our co-hosts, Candy O'Terry and JC Don Valeris. They sat down with icons in the music industry,
0: and you've got a front row seat. Welcome to Country Music Success Stories.
1: Hi, I'm Candy O'Terry. And I'm JC Don Valeris. Question: What does this week's guest have in common with Madonna, Prince, and Beyoncé? Answer, she goes by her first name only, Sylvia.
2: There is so much to talk about when it comes to this award-winning record-setting artist. For starters, she had one of those songs that you just could not get away from. Her multi-format hit was called Nobody, and it went to number one on the country charts, number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100, and was even a hit at AC, or Adult Contemporary Radio, where it went top five. Nobody was the most played song of 1982, winning her the Academy of Country Music's Female Vocalist of the Year Award and a Grammy nomination for Best Female Vocalist. Not bad for a girl from Kokomo,
1: Indiana. I've been a fan of Sylvia since I was a young artist myself, and I couldn't wait to hear about her hometown, how she got her start in Nashville, what advice she has for young artists, and what this latest chapter in her life is like. Here's a hint. She has a gorgeous new album out called Nature Child, A Dreamer's Journey. In fact, she invited us to her producer, John home, where the two wrote some of these inspiring songs together and recorded Nature
2: Child, which has been a dream of Sylvia's for many years. There was definitely magic in the air as we pressed record on this interview. One thing is for certain, Sylvia's heart and soul will always belong to the joy of making music. But we had to ask, who was the first person to encourage her love of singing? It was my mother.
0: I've told the story so many times that my aunt was over visiting at the trailer park I lived in as a child, Tall Timbers Trailer Park. She heard me singing because I was singing all the time. And it just was like eating, sleeping, breathing, singing, even at that young age. And my aunt, I remember overhearing my aunt Nancy say to my mom, you should let Sylvia sing at church. At that time, went to this very small little Pilgrim Holiness Church. And so that was really the first time I sang in front of people mm-hmm. at three years old. And got a lot of pats on the head. But the, the most memorable thing to me was, you know, there was probably 20 people in the pews. And the sunlight was beaming through the windows. And as I was singing, I heard this voice inside me say, this is what you do. And from that moment on, I knew this is what I was going to be doing in life.
2: Tall Timbers Trailer Park. Yeah. Walk us through.
0: Well... It's in Kokomo, Indiana, where I grew up, and of course there were tall trees there, very tall trees, and lots of trailers. And we lived in the trailer on the very back corner of the lot. We lived about 30 feet from the train track and that inspired one of the songs that's on Nature Child, actually. It's called Every Time a Train Goes By. Every time a train goes by, a train goes by, my confidence grows. I can face any old whistle that blows. Every time a train goes by. I was very shy as a kid. I hid behind my mother's skirts. I was very shy. But I was scared of train because it was so loud and if I was out playing I would run and hide under the trailer so I was telling my friend Tom Schuyler the story one day we were listening to some music that John had written I told him the story about the train and we realized that the music that John had written had a train feel And I think that's what spurred the memory and then we wrote the song.
2: Isn't it amazing how the experiences we have as a child mm-hmm. form that foundation that follows mm-hmm. you for the rest of your life? Yes. Who were your musical heroes, your role models, when you were growing up?
0: The first one that I remember is Patsy Cline. My dad is from Tennessee and so I spent a lot of time in Tennessee as a kid. My dad's people are all from up around Lafayette which is in Macon County close to the Kentucky line. And so I grew up listening to the Grand Ole Opry, driving to see my grandparents on a Friday <laughs> night. And so I don't think of any particular artist. I just I just love the, the vibe, the energy of the music. But when I first heard Patsy Cline, that's when I got serious about knowing that where I would come. Because I, I always said when I grew up, I was gonna be a singer. And it became clear that, oh, I'm, I'm going to Nashville. <laughs> And of course, Tammy Wynette and Karen Carpenter, I oh, love Karen too. Carpenter, you know, her voice I, is like a
2: glass of water. Oh, so pure, it's right?
0: Amazing. She inspired me. So it was probably Patsy and Karen were the two main vocalists that inspired me. But also Tammy Wynette. I really love Tammy. And I love Tanya Tucker. In yes. high school, Tanya was really hitting it big. And, and I was just like, oh my gosh, I got to hurry up and get to Nashville because she was like 13 when she had her first hit. So it's like, I'm, I'm going to be old when I get to Nashville.
2: But you knew it from the time you were a little girl. Yeah. They say that the record or the CD that you purchased at 14 defines your musical core. For me, that was Linda Ronstadt, Heart Like a Wheel. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what that album was for you? Oh, it was Patsy. It was Patsy Klein.
0: Yeah, that's one of my first albums that I bought. You arrived in Nashville as
1: a high school graduate on the day after Christmas. Did you have your family support to make that
0: move? I had just turned 19 December 9th, and the, so just a few weeks before I moved here. My parents did support me in coming down. They helped me find an apartment, and Dad bought me a, a 1974 green, crap green <laughs> Maverick. I, so it was the most terrible color green. I love the color green, but that Maverick was not the right color green. But it was a good little car for my first few years in town. It got set up in an apartment, and it was really maybe five minutes from Music Row. It was on Ackland Park Drive, and I parked my car down on Music Row that first week I was in town. And of course it was between Christmas and New Year's so there was nobody hardly working on Music Row. Right. But I had made a previous trip down and had met Tom Collins. And so I knew they were moving to Music Row and I found where they were moving in and they were in the process of moving during the holiday. So they were there. And, I, and they had met me like two, or three months before and I came in they said, oh, you're down back down for another visit. I said, oh no, I've moved down. <laughs> And they, <laughs> jaws dropped. Because <laughs> I was so green. I was so innocent. I had never been on a date. I lived a pretty sequestered life as a kid and had just laser focused on being a singer.
1: What kind of thing surprised you about the music industry when you first got here?
0: The nice surprise, it was like a family. Music Row was really Music Row then. It's very changed now. There's still houses that are publishing companies and stuff, but it's become much more corporate influenced. So I really am so grateful that I came to town when I did and that I got to experience the camaraderie. I walked up and down Music Grove for the first week I was in Nashville knocking on every door, introducing myself and looking for a job. And I was really lucky that within a month, Janie Fricky got a job (laughs) recording for Columbia Records. Tom Collins' secretary, Carolyn Honey, called me and said, Hey, Janie isn't going to be working here. Would you like to have this job? And I ended up working there the next four and a half years at a music publishing company, which was my dream to work in the business somehow.
1: Well, speaking of that, you started working at Gem Music. Mm -hmm. You were doing everything from answering phones to singing on demos.
0: Mm -hmm. What did you learn about the music industry in your time there? Oh, A lot. I was the receptionist. So everybody that came in the door, which was pretty much everybody in the music industry, (laughs) other writers, other publishers, producers, record label people, it was like the best internship you can have ever imagined. It was just fabulous. So definitely an understanding of kind of how the music industry works. And that was my plan. I, I thought, well, if I'm going to be working in the music industry, I want to understand how it works. And I want to know the people in the industry, because these are my peeps. These are the people that I'm going to be working with for years to come, hopefully. I did fewer demos for Pie Gym and Chess Music than I did for other publishers. You know, it's almost like where you are, they don't see you. But out there, you know, in other places, you know, finally, you know, after a few years, some publishers and writers called Tom and said, are you going to take her in the studio? If not, because they knew I worked there. So they were doing the right thing. They called and, He started noticing people were calling, saying, are you going to record her? And he wasn't really interested in recording me at all. (laughs) But when other people got interested, then he got interested. (laughs) But actually what happened is I auditioned for the group Dave and Sugar when one of the girls left. And uh, so that's really how the RCA people heard me. So you were eventually signed to RCA Records in
1: 1979 as a solo artist. Do you remember your audition? Did you sing a certain song?
0: Well, I was auditioning for Dave and Sugar. And so I was singing Dave and Sugar songs, and I was singing a harmony part. And Charlie Pride was at (gasps) those auditions. Jerry Bradley, who was the head of RCA, was at those auditions. Because Dave and Sugar was Charlie Pride's; They were his backup singing group. And then they got their deal from being his group, and then I was you know, in that audition to take one of the girls place who was leaving the group. And I got a call at Pi Gym, you know, because I'm answering the phone, Pi Jim and Chess Music. And uh, it was Jerry Bradley who called and said, oh, well, else? Is this Sylvia? <laughs> he had this kind of gruff voice. Is this, is this Sylvia? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I just want you to know, we've made a decision. We didn't pick you, but you were running her up. But he said, but... Charlie Pride and I really liked your voice. And so we're going to talk to Tom and get him to get you, get you in the studio and record some sides. And oh that's that's how it happened. So wow. I didn't really want to be a
2: part of a group. So that was like the dream come true. So Everything <laughs> happens the way it's supposed to, right? It does. It does. I'm curious about the name Sylvia. Plain Sylvia. I mean, we have Madonna. We have Prince. We have Sylvia. You at some point decided, I'm just going to be my first name.
0: Well, it was a very not thought about, spur of the moment thing that happened i was at that time i was married and had the last name alan and deborah Allen was on the label at the time so i couldn't use alan and my maiden name is kirby which i suggested we use and they said isn't there a vacuum cleaner named kirby and so i didn't (laughs) they did i could see it coming they're going to make up some phony last name for me sylvia is my real name and i said well what why don't we just use my first name i mean it was just came out of my mouth there was no thought involved it just popped out of my mouth and there was this moment of silence around the table there at RCA. And then Joe Galani, I think it was Joe at the time, he said, OK, that was sounds it. good. That was all the thought that
2: went into it. <laughs> the hits started coming for you within about two years. You cracked the top 10 on the country charts with singles from your debut album Drifter, including Tumbleweed, The Matador, Heart on the Men. These were all top 10 songs. And then the single Drifter went to number one. What do you remember about that time in your career? We're guessing that you were doing touring, you were doing radio promotions. It must have been a whirlwind. It was a
0: whirlwind. Yeah, the third single was Tumbleweed, and that was the first song that went to top 10. And then the very next single was Drifter. It went to number one. At that time, the word on the street was RCA will give you three shots at having a top 10 record. And if it doesn't go top 10 and three, they drop you from the label so I knew that third single was really critical and a different song had been chosen one that didn't even end up being on the album as I recall and uh and that's the 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 one that RCA had chosen and I remember going to Tom and saying that's not the single that's not the single we cannot put that one out I want to put tumbleweed out And so Tom went to the label and said, you know, we're not happy with this single choice. We really would like to go with Tumbleweed. And thank goodness they went along with that. And then that became my first top ten. And that ensured that I could stay a little longer. Tumbleweed.
2: Tell me by the first time you ever heard your song on the
0: radio. It just feels surreal. And at the same time, it feels like, yes, this is, it's like an affirmation that, yeah, I've known since I was three years old, this is what I'm going to do in this life. The (laughs) voice told you. But it's still surreal and humbling, you know, and I think as the years have gone on, I have a perspective on it that I didn't really have then of just how incredible that it was that, that things just took off pretty quickly for me.
2: You know, we've had artists tell us that they heard their f- song for the first time while they're in a car, driving along, out it comes from the radio, roll the window down, this is my song. <laughs> yeah. I was too shy for that.
0: <laughs> I really was very shy. And when I signed with RCA, I had zero performing experience. I had sang in the studio, but I had not performed live. Talk about being thrown into the deep end of the pool. Well, I remember Joe Galani asking me because they had, when Joe took over from Jerry Bradley, a lot of people were dropped from the label. A lot of people who had been on the label for decades. And here I was, a a newbie that was signed by the previous head of the label, which didn't usually bode well. (laughs) You know, usually there's a house cleaning. And for some reason, because I remember him asking me, well, now, what kind of stage experience do you have? I said, well, not much. but you I know, sang I learned, in church. I learned. No, I just did that one time. Oh, That's it. <laughs> no, I had no. I sang in front of my parents' dresser mirror along with the radio. That was the experience I had when I moved to Nashville. And so I told him, I said, well, but I learned fast.
2: And I was just real clear. And I think he went, okay, all right, we'll try it. 1982. Mm -hmm. Landmark year for you with the studio album, Just Sylvia. Mm -hmm. The single Nobody becomes a multi-format monster hit, becoming the most played song of 1982. Did you know it was a hit when you recorded that song? Take us into that session.
0: We had recorded all the songs for the Just Sylvia album, but we were going to do one more session just to be sure, we wanted a few more than 10. Usually 10 songs was what made an album then. We'd already chosen the songs for that session, for the last session. And I was going over those songs with Tom Collins, my producer at the time. Kai Fleming and Dennis Morgan, who were hot songwriters during the 80s, busted into the office and said, you've got to hear this song. You've got to hear this song. And this was in the morning. We had a two o'clock session booked. And, and they said, we just finished it. it you've you got to hear it and they played me live, they didn't record it, they just came in and played it live, they'd not put it down on tape at that time. By the time the chorus came around the second time, I was singing along with them, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is really cool, I love this song. And so it ended up being the last song on the last session, it was the kind of the extra session, I think we ran through it three times, the third time, It was like, okay, and that's the vocal you hear. I did it live with the studio musicians in the studio. I had just learned the song hours before, and I think we went back in and punched one line, and that was it. One note, I think. It was just one word, and that ended up being the live vocal that ended up being on the record, so it felt special. I didn't know if we knew it was going to be a hit, but it just felt like there's fairy dust just flying around in the studio that day. (laughs) (laughs)
1: By gold, it was BMI's Song of the Year. You received a Grammy nomination, and you were also awarded the ACM's Female Vocalist of the Year. What do you remember most about hearing your name called in that moment and knowing you had won that gigantic award?
0: I was kind of numb. I didn't expect to win it because, you know, it just, there were <laughs> great, big, very successful singers up against, you know, me. And I, I just was glad to be in the nominated. So I didn't really know. I didn't know what I was going to say or, or anything. So it was glorious. It was it was really a beautiful moment. It felt affirming that, you know, people like what I'm doing. And that's always a good thing to feel so yeah I'm very grateful to have had that experience.
1: Throughout the 80s you continued to tour and release albums with singles that climb the charts recording for RCA until 1987 delivering 11 top 10 songs during your contract but when that deal ended you decided to take a break and focus more on your songwriting. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that decision?
0: I worked a lot during the 80s, that decade. I worked probably an average of 250 concert dates a year. And I was ready to have a little break. But I was not just that, because I loved travel. I'm, I'm a, kind of a gypsy at heart at that time, especially, more so than now. But I really enjoyed the road and, and waking up in a different town every day and loved my little room on my bus. And <laughs> it, was, it was really a great time. But I was feeling like the music was very of of course it needs to be very radio oriented and up-tempo and there's all this pressure to to make records for radio so I was growing up as a human being you know I was coming to the end of my 20s and I was feeling like I've got things to say and once you have success with a certain type of song which you know nothing wrong with fun bouncy little songs they're fine but as you grow into an artist and become more, go from being an act to an artist, right. you want to say things in the music. You and You And if you're going to be up there 250 days a year doing concerts, you want to say something. And I was feeling that, so I wanted to write. And I had met and had gotten friendly with some songwriter friends, and, and I was like... <laughs> I want to write. Would you write with me? Because I, I knew I needed to be mentored. I knew I had things to say. But the the 80s were a surprise in that, especially after nobody, a lot of children came to my shows, which was not planned. In fact, radio complained to RCA saying, you know, our demographic is this to the, this age, and we got eight-year-olds calling up requesting nobody. That's not our demographic. Believe it or not, they were complaining. The single sold like two million singles. 45s at the time, which was just didn't happen anymore. And uh, so I, when I got off the road, I, I thought I what I'd really love to do is write some music that I want to say to these kids instead of kind of adult themed, somebody's cheating on somebody <laughs> songs. <laughs> so I, that was what I wanted to write. And 34 years later, Nature Child, A Dreamer's Journey is out. And, and six of those 12 songs were written at the end of the 80s and the early 90s. That's what really happened with this record and then it kind of got parked and the other half of the record has been written since like just well we wrote I think four or five of the songs just in the last while we were recording the record and so it's really this is my most for me my favorite thing I've ever done
1: well everyone has their own process of how they write songs what is your process
0: it varies but on this project I'm mainly a lyricist because John Mock he wrote the music he's a composer and usually doesn't think of himself as a songwriter but his music that he writes and composes has definitely kind of a folky feel, Celtic influence. So he wrote these pieces of music during the production. We started recording the first songs that were written for the record, Avalon and Imagination. And the songs I wrote with Verlin Thompson on the record are the songs that were written from like 88 to 1990. And uh, then the others were written more recently. There's been such a clear direction in this music. I wanted to write it for kids. I wanted to say this is what I want to say if I had a child at that time. I didn't have a child. This time I don't have a child. (laughs) You know, I thought I would have children, but I didn't. And uh, so this is really precious to me. I have nieces and nephews and I just think kids and and the child inside of all of us are going to love this record. It's not like any children's record probably you've heard. It's not typical.
1: Well, you said that this record is like being on a journey. It tells a story. And Mm -hmm. not long ago, People Magazine said, Sylvia can still sing a story song better than almost anyone around. Mm. What is your secret to being able to do that?
0: I worked with a wonderful voice teacher for over 30 years. And Gerald Arthur was his name. He passed away a a couple years ago, lived into his 90s. I met with him every Wednesday at 1130. But what I learned in working with Gerald and what I learned about what makes me passionate about singing is telling the story. It's not about vocal gymnastics. It's really connecting around a story. Nothing wrong with doing those other things. Uh, it's, it's just not my gig. <laughs> you know, It's like I really care about connecting from a heartfelt space through a story musically. So I think I'm kind of a, I'm almost like a bard. You know, I'm like a a, a musical storyteller. That's how I see myself. I don't see myself as an entertainer or a performer or, you know, any of those things. Those things are great. I would think in the 80s, people would say she was a performer, she was an entertainer, but now I'm more of a singer-songwriter, more storyteller through music, that's, that's kind of my thing. Well,
1: you talk a lot about doing vocal lessons throughout your career and continuing to get better at what you do. I admire that so much about you because mm-hmm. I don't know that everyone actually continues doing that as they become successful. What is some of the best advice you've been given about
0: taking care of your vocals? there's many things. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. But if you are a singer, and this is your profession, I highly, highly recommend that you work with a voice teacher. You know, not all voice teachers are equal. So find one that you really resonate with that's going to help you protect your voice because, you know, your vocal cords are muscles. So in a sense, you're a vocal athlete. And to take care of yourself vocally is really important if you want to keep doing this for years to come. From that standpoint, it's important. But I think, more so even than that, is finding your uniqueness. What do you want to do musically? And to me, I've gone really on a totally different path than most country music singers. And I and I really don't even see myself as defined by country music. It's just music. And I think it's important to find why you want to do this. I work as a life and career coach and have been for over 20 years now. And often I'm in situations where I'm coaching young people. And it's been really amazing how often initially when you ask people why you're doing this, why do you want to, they want to get rich and famous. Yeah. When I first came to town, I wanted, I didn't think about riches really. I just thought about, I wanted to be famous because I think from my life experience, I wanted to feel loved and being, feeling loved was a big push for me. Because I didn't uh, you know had a father who was alcoholic and had a very tumultuous childhood, and I think that kind of shot me out of Kokomo, Indiana, like a cannon, you know, <laughs> I wasn't conscious of this, of course, and you know so you you learn these things looking back. But what was very true also is that I truly love to sing. I don't care if anybody's listening. it doesn't matter. I just love to sing, and that has never changed. But I've learned through these years of being in the spotlight and then back out of the spotlight for many years now and doing an independent recording career is that I'm kind of carving my own way in life with music. And I hope people love it. I hope people can find it. I hope people go to sylviamusic.com and find me. It's In a sense, it's not even my business. My business is just creating the music and being as present as possible with it and bringing my heart and soul to it in the moment. That's what I'm up to,
2: and I hope people discover it. Well, the latest CD, again, is called Nature's Child, A Dreamer's Journey. We're talking to Sylvia. And as you open up this beautiful CD, here's what it says. You are about to embark on a musical journey to the beautiful and enchanting city of Avalon. It's a land where your dreams come true with endless possibilities. And there's a song called Don't Be Afraid, to dream. And based on the story that you've just told us, mm-hmm. that must resonate for you to send that message to children. Yes. Yes, it does.
0: You may think it's cliche to say you don't be afraid to dream. But I think we are so tethered to our technology from infancy that I think we have offloaded our imaginations to a device. We're all going to have our devices. Nothing wrong with devices. I, lo- I look at my cell phone probably a lot more than I should. But I think it's important that we carve out time to just be in our imaginations. Not the TV's imaginations, not our phone, not YouTube, not all these things that they're fine to do, but to carve out time where you're just in your own imagination. Because I think that's where we get inner direction about what we want to do with our lives. I spent a lot of quiet time as a child sitting in trees listening to my inner guidance (laughs) and I was always encouraged and totally knew that that was my path in life. So dream, don't be afraid to dream. You can do anything if you will. go by the sky is waiting there to see you fly so dream don't be afraid to dream don't be afraid to dream and don't be afraid to put down the phone for a little while or or the the tablet or whatever the computer and just go out and play in nature and find out what your insides are telling you because there's always there's a dialogue going on there if we tune
2: in (laughs) there's always a lesson along the way Mm -hmm. in your career in your personal life Mm -hmm. for you Sylvia what's been the greatest lesson
0: at this time in my life yeah one of the things I'm contemplating right now is how can I be of the greatest service to the whole. That's the contemplation I'm in right now. And I think being of service in some way at this time in my life is the most important thing. And it's a natural progression. We all evolve. You know, in my twenties it was all about me, 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 me. (laughs) And then, you know, I think as I keep evolving in life, I realize that it's okay to talk about me, but I'm I'm really more interested in other people. I think in this celebrity culture that we live in. The focus is just on creating some kind of celebrity, shiny, glamorous kind of thing that really, when I look back, doesn't have any depth. It's kind of like staying on the surface of the ocean, you know. And for my life, what's important for me has been to drop down into the stillness of the ocean to make clearer choices than I was able to make back then. Nothing wrong with the choices I made. It's just part of where I am in my life right now. So to be of service to other people, and I think this album that I made, Nature Child, A Dreamer's Journey, can be of service to people to listen. It's like I don't want to be necessarily famous from this record. I just want people to hear it and be inspired by it. That makes me happy.
2: Well, experience equals wisdom. Mm -hmm. So what do you wish you knew when you arrived in Nashville on the day after Christmas at the age of 19? What would you tell that girl that you've learned?
0: Be patient. Uh, I was so ready to have a recording deal right away. And and there was, I wasn't ready for a recording deal. In fact, I wasn't even really fully ready for a recording deal when I got it because I was learning how to sing and learning how to perform on stage and all that. But also know that it's my responsibility to develop my talents I kept thinking that these people should be nurturing me. They should be helping me grow. They should be. And it was like, no, 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 honey. (laughs) That's your responsibility, Sylvia. (laughs) And that's when I, I started seeing a voice teacher and I started taking care of myself. And then after I'd written some songs for a little while after I got off the road in the 80s and I started to go back and knock on the doors and see if I could get another recording contract. Nobody was interested. I was really depressed and kind of gave up. I thought, well, you know, I, may, I guess I need to do something else. That's when I discovered coaching, which was a wonderful thing. And about two weeks after I surrendered my music career, I got a call about doing a Christmas record. And then I realized I can't give my power to other people to tell me whether or not I can make music. And that's when I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record myself
2: and explore my own route. And that's where I've been since 1996. Our final question, and thank you so much for having us here today and for telling us your story. The key to my success in country music has been what? Fill in the blank. Never having any doubt that I could do it. I want to say thank you so much for having us here. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you all wanting to talk with me. Thank you.
0: There they are, Candy O'Terry and JC Don Valeris, two award-winning interviewers who are respected and trusted right here in Nashville. Do us a favor and hit that subscribe button right now and tell your friends about the show. Follow them at Country Music Success Stories and on TikTok at Candy and JC.